You can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you so that you can follow along with us. No takers on the Bibles? That's good, I think. And we're in chapter 3 tonight. Let's again just bow our hearts, remember who it is that we're here for and who we're listening to, who we belong to. Father, we, uh, we are yours. Lord, you said that you're the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. You're the chief shepherd who will appear to come for his own, Lord, to call us by name. Lord, you know us, you know the very number of hairs upon our head. You know our thoughts before we think them. Lord, you know our tomorrows before we live them. Lord, all things that concern us are in your hand. And tonight, Lord, in our hand, we hold your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak it into our lives. Lord, not that we would learn something of you, but that, Lord, you might take some more possession of us. And so, Lord, we pray, please, grip us. Arrest our attention. Draw our affections, Lord. I pray that we might be absolutely, completely attentive to what you have to say to us tonight. Lord, that we'd be spoken to, touched, and changed. Please, Lord, we ask these things according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome with the purpose and the intention of teaching, describing, giving to them an understanding of the gospel. He wants them to understand the gospel. And in the first three chapters where we find ourselves tonight, Paul is making a singular point that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To the heathen, to those that are godless, to those that have no moral standard or compass, to those that uh, just live according to their own rule and could care less for God or give any thought to it, he proves conclusively that they are guilty before God and that they are without excuse, even though they might plead ignorance before him. He then talks to those that hold some form of a moral standard, that live according to their conscience, that set for themselves a bar but yet are unable to live up to it. The moralist. The hypocrite, if you would. And he concludes again that they are also under sin, that they're guilty before God and without excuse. And then where we left off last week, he's talking to the Jew, or, if you would, to the religious person. To the person that has a a name, they have uh, something that they attach themselves to. They might call themselves a Jew or just as much they might call themselves a Baptist or a Methodist or a Calvary Chapelist or whatever it is that they might subscribe to that they give themselves a name with. They hold to that name as though the name itself can save them. They also have a creed. Paul said that they rest in the law, that they hold to the word, and that they think that having that in and of itself, knowing something of the truth, is enough to save them. They have a claim that they profess that they know God, that they have the Lord, 
that he is alive in their church, that they're the ones that, you know, have God and that everybody else wishes they could be like them, but they have that claim. He says that they have knowledge. They might even know the Bible, be able to profess it. They might have a handle on the Old Testament scriptures or, or on the whole completely. And they also have confidence to lead others. They feel as though they are guides to the blind. And yet because they trust in themselves or they trust in their religion or they trust in their creed or their belief system to save them and not in Christ personally, Paul says that the result is that they don't have power to keep the very standards that their creed sets for them. And thus, in chapter 2, verse 24, he says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. That because they profess something but live something else because their profession is void of Christ, it causes the world to look on and say, it's fake, it's phony, it, it amounts to nothing, it counts for nothing. And so Paul is spiraling now towards his conclusion as he talks to the Jew or to the person that trusts in their religion that they also are guilty before God. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that none is righteous. No, not one. Now, after talking about their name, their creed, their claim, their knowledge, their confidence, he goes on this stint at the end of chapter 2 on the subject of circumcision. Because to the Jews, that was their thing. That was their mark, the identifying characteristic. That which separated them from everybody else in the world and that gave them a claim towards God. The fact that they were circumcised, they were marked, they were cut away, they were separated. And so he talks about that circumcision and he says to them in verse 25, For circumcision verily profits if you keep the law. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, again the Gentiles, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Essentially, as Paul now is setting up to what he's going to say next in chapter 3, he says to them, circumcision, for all intents and purposes, in and of itself, profits you nothing. Now, I know that that sounds kind of like, okay, well, he's getting ready to go into chapter 3, so he's just kind of rehashing the end of chapter 2 on this little thing about circumcision. But if you're a Jew... In those days. And if you're listening to what Paul's saying and you're thinking through his logic as he's going through, to an audience of Jews that might be listening to what Paul's saying, it would be very similar if I were to say to you, the cross means nothing. Now, if I made that claim and I said to you, I came in here tonight and I said, you know what? I've been really studying and God really has revealed some things to me and I just want you to know that the cross means nothing. You would all, like, you know, you'd be like, okay, okay, you better, you know, quickly get to the point of that and, and rephrase. And I said, no, really, the cross means nothing. Let's pray. And then we finished our study. You know, you would all be throwing rocks at me because we know that the cross is like the hinge upon which our faith stands. 
Well, Paul here is making a very similar claim as he looks at this group of people and he says that circumcision profits nothing. Essentially, the very thing that Abraham waited 25 years to get from God, this covenant, this sign, Paul is now saying it means nothing. Abraham was 75 years old in this thing uh, when, when, uh, when, when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he gave to him a promise. Abraham, he said to him, that I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless them who bless you, and I will curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God gave that promise to Abraham when he was 75. And it wasn't until 25 years later, when he was 99, almost 100 years old, that God revisited and reestablished and expanded that promise and gave to him the covenant of circumcision. He said, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child. And you're going to circumcise him. And all the males that are descendants of you are to be circumcised. And that's going to be my covenant, the sign of my involvement in your nation. The cutting away of the flesh. A separation, a mark of distinction that there's going to be a difference between you and the rest. And that's what that became to the Jew, that mark of circumcision. It was an insult that was thrown about. If, if you were you know, not walking as a proper Jew, they would call you an uncircumcised person. And that was a high insult. David, remember when Goliath came and was taunting the living God, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he says these things about the Lord? It was a big thing for the Jews, this whole concept, this thing of circumcision. And here now Paul is saying that it means nothing. And you can almost hear that sentiment growing in the heart of the audience. And thus Paul, as we begin chapter 3, he says, well, thinking like them, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? He's going to give three arguments that his audience might bring up. In these first eight or nine verses here of chapter 3, three arguments that those listening to what he's saying might bring up. And the first is, what, Paul? The first argument that they would bring, what? You're saying that circumcision is nothing? How could you, how could you make such a claim like this to say that it is nothing? And so Paul asked the question from their perspective, well, what advantage then does the Jew have and what profit is there in circumcision? Why did God even give to Abraham this mark, this sign, this covenant, if it really essentially means nothing? Why? Why was this distinction drawn between Abraham and his descendants? Why was there this cutting away of the flesh? It was the identifying mark of the Jew and now Paul is saying it's irrelevant? How could he make such a claim? How could he say this? Now Paul answers that and he says, no, of course it's not irrelevant. Of course it's not nothing. He answers the question in verse 2. He says, there is profit, there is advantage in being a Jew. He says, much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. He says, no, it isn't that circumcision was irrelevant. It wasn't that it meant nothing. It, it wasn't that there didn't need to be a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's not the point at all, Paul is saying. The point is that you misrepresented or misinterpreted what the sign was all about. The sign of circumcision was never intended to be a sign or a mark of salvation. 
It was never evidence in and of itself that you were saved, that just because you were a Jew and just because when you were eight days old you were circumcised that therefore you were saved. No, that's not what the purpose of it was. It wasn't a sign of salvation, but rather it was a platform wherein God would work through the nation in two ways that Paul brings up here. First of all, he says that unto them were committed the oracles of God. That through Abraham, God birthed the nation where through he could give the scriptures to the world. It was through the prophets, through God's leading of the nation, through the events and circumstances that happened to them, that God revealed his nature, his word to the world. We owe the very Bibles that we're studying tonight to the fact that God called Abraham and formed a nation out of him. Because it was through the Jews that the truth came, the oracles of God, this truth of God that we have. So his word was given through the Jews. That was an advantage of circumcision. The second thing that Paul brings to our attention as far as the advantage that the Jew have in verse 3 is that they also were participants of his work. Look at verse 3. It says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Does the fact that they didn't believe, does the fact that they didn't have faith, make God's faithfulness void? Does it stop God from doing the things that he's going to do? God raised up a nation for truth, but he also raised up a nation wherein he would enter into the world himself and become the atoning sacrifice for sin. It was through this Jewish race that Jesus would be born and birthed. It was through that nation that Messiah would come and be presented to the world. And thus, the faithfulness of God would stand even if they didn't believe the very thing that God was doing with them as a nation. It would be Messiah, but it would also be for them. The Bible is full of promises that God has for the Jews as a nation collectively. God isn't through with the Jews. He still has a plan. We see the evidence of that today as they've been gathered back into their land. That God's not done with them. That he has a plan for them. And even though they don't believe, it doesn't make void the faithfulness of God. So circumcision does profit it just isn't what they rep- they made it to be. It doesn't represent salvation, but rather it's a platform wherein God gave his word to the world and manifested his work also to the world. The outward mark of circumcision is not what saved them. Did you know the same thing is true for the outward things in our lives? Did you know that the outward part of our Christianity is not the thing that saves us. Our church attendance, our prayer record, our Bible reading, our ministry service, all the things that we do, our sharing on the job site or in our homes or teaching our kids, none of those things are what save us. Those aren't the identifying marks that make us saved. What what saves us is the fact that the Savior is alive within us. That we've been born again and the Spirit of God lives in us. And then all those other things are an outflow and an outcropping of that. But it's Jesus that saves us, not the outward things, church attendance and all the rest. It's just a a platform. So he answers this argument that they would have. Well, what 
distinction then was God making? Why did he even bother giving them circumcision? He answers it. He says, God had a reason for it. You just misinterpreted what that reason was. Well, the second argument that they would have then is in verse 5. He says that, speaking from their vantage point, but if our unrighteousness then commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? And he says, I speak as a man. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from the other side. I'm giving to you an argument. He says, well, if these things essentially, circumcision and all the rites and rituals that make us Jews, if those things don't save us, and they weren't intended to save us, then that means that the only thing left for them to do, if they don't save us, if I do all these things and I'm still not saved, then the only thing that those do things do is condemn me then. They just prove that I'm unrighteous because I need to be separated. I need to do those things. And yet if those things don't save me, well, then I'm unrighteous. Therefore, all these things do is commend the righteousness of God and make me look worse. So Paul says, if that's the case, then is it fair for God to judge me? If I do everything I'm supposed to do, like Paul, remember in Philippians 3, Paul said, I was circumcised the eighth day, I was born of the stock of Abraham, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, he goes through all this list of things, and he says, all of that was rubbish. It did absolutely nothing for me. It didn't save him, it didn't do anything for him as far as bringing him into a relationship with God at all. It was completely void. It was empty. He wasn't saved because of those things. They didn't help him. So he was still guilty before God in all of that. And, and, and so then, if, if all of that doesn't save him, then how is it fair for God to judge him? How can God, a righteous God, judge a man who does everything he's supposed to do, and yet those things aren't enough to save him? It wouldn't be fair for God to judge him. Well, Paul answers his own argument then in verses 6 and 7. He says, God forbid, for then shall how, how shall God judge the world? Every Jew would agree that the Gentiles were still to be judged. Those that were outside of Israel. So if the Jews and the Gentiles are all on this platform of guilt before God, then if it's not fair for God to judge the Jew, then it's not fair for God to judge the Gentiles either. So he says that argument doesn't stand. That it isn't fair for God to judge my sin. God has to judge your sin. If he doesn't judge your sin, then he's not going to judge anybody's sin. And nobody thinks that God's not going to judge anybody's sin. We all know there's a judgment for sin that's coming. He says, how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, yet why am I also judged as a sinner? And then he gives this third argument in verse 8. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. The third argument he gives that they might be thinking, well, okay, if this is true, if circumcision doesn't save me or profit me anything, and if all the righteous acts that I do don't bring me any closer to God, then it stands to reason that I might as well just go sin. I might as well just obey all of the lusts, desires, and inclinations of my flesh because... (laughs) Nothing I can do can ever save me. And Paul's response to that argument is very simply, your damnation is just. That it's completely fair for you then to be condemned because you're just giving in to the very thing that God says is an aberration and an offense to who he is. 
And so as Paul wraps up this section, I, I know it seems a little bit, you know, confusing as he has this kind of dialogue with himself concerning, you know, their thoughts and his answers to those types of things. The conclusion that he comes to is that whether you're a outright heathen, whether you're a moralist, you call yourself a good person, or whether you're a Jew who has kept the law to the best of your ability for your whole life, the conclusion is that you are still guilty before God. That there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. And then in verse 9, as he gets into this, he spirals quickly to his conclusion by including himself into this category of sinful man and then wrapping it all together and just stirring the pot together that all have sinned. He says, what then? Are we better than they? He includes himself. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm speaking from a platform as one who has attained. And so therefore, I have the authority and the ability to tell you who is righteous and who isn't, because I am the great Apostle Paul. He says, are we any better? Am I any better than any of the others? He says, no, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written. Now, this is a very, very positive and uplifting section of Scripture. I hope you are ready to be encouraged. Because Paul is going to take everything that he's been saying for the past three or two and a half chapters about how sinful man is, and he's going to wrap it all up into this great big snowball of sin. So this describes you and me. This is what God sees when he looks at man. When he looks at you and me, and he sees what's in our heart and what we're made up of, this is his assessment of it in a nutshell. Verse 10, as it is written, first of all, their position there is none righteous. No, not one. That as God scans the broad spectrum of humanity, he looks into every heart. It says in, the, in Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking for someone whose heart is perfect towards him. And as God scans all of humanity, he sees there is none righteous. No, not one. Not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not you or me, not my grandma, who just sits there and flips the prayer cards. You know, none. There is none righteous. No, not one. I think of John on the Isle of Patmos when he was caught up and he sees this heavenly vision. And the scroll, the title deed to the earth, is handed out. And it says that there was none worthy. There was no one found in heaven or in earth or under the earth that was worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals thereof. There is none righteous. Past, present, and future. He says, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. All of the gurus of the world, all those that claim to... To, or have some stake and some claim that they hold the truth in some way that profess and say, follow me, whether it be Buddha or Confucius or the great philosophers of old. Paul says, from God's perspective, he looks and he says, there's none that understands. He says, there's none that seek after God. It's interesting, you know, you hear about seeker-sensitive churches that are reaching out to seekers. The Bible says that there are no seekers, that there's none that seek after God. The Bible says that men love darkness because their deeds were evil. It's God that draws us to himself, not us that search out him. 
There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. That's their position. Then he goes on and he talks about their profession or what they say. In verse 13, he says that their throat is an open sepulcher. Isn't that a great picture? Talk about morning breath. <laughs> you know, he says their throat, an open sepulchre, an open grave. And, and I see this picture because when I read this, the first thing that came into my mind was that scripture in Jeremiah 17 where it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who could know it? That the very root and core of our evil nature is in our heart, in the deepest part of who we are. And then in the Proverbs it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's the picture. You have this pit of evil residing within you at your very core. And then it says that your throat is an open sepulcher. In other words, that you know, through your throat, through this mouth gate that God has given to us, all that happens is it just exposes the black darkness of who we are internally. Very uplifting, isn't it? Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. So the throat, the open sepulcher, then the tongue, which is the means of spraying out that depth, that, you know, that death. Not only do we have this well of death within us, but we also have a hose that we can get it out with. The tongue, with their tongues they have used deceit, and then the poison of asps or snakes is under their lips. So that's the door. So you have the well of evil, you have the hose, and then you have the valve, the door. And, and we just kind of use this thing constantly. Your tongue is the only organ that comes with its own cage. <laughs> and yet we hold the key very loosely, don't we? <laughs> their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He goes from their profession to their procession. What they say to how they walk in verse 15. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. The Bible says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We haven't known His. And then he says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let me just read those verses again all together and you can just listen to how bad you really are. He says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now listen, if God is seeking righteousness, and God is looking for someone that is profitable, then what human can he find where he finds what he's looking for? And the answer becomes more and more that there are none. That there is nothing. I opened my prayer before the study. I wasn't even thinking about it, but by what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you visit Him. And this is, this is where that question stems from. Is that why would God think about us? Why would God care about us? Because what God is saying to us right here is that there's absolutely nothing in us that makes us of any value to Him whatsoever. Logically. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul gives us this thing. 
So if none are righteous and all are guilty, then the question that remains for us as we consider this, you know, gospel that we're studying here in Romans is what then was the purpose of the law? If there's none righteous and everyone's guilty, then what was the purpose of God giving us this law in the first place? The Ten Commandments, the rites of circumcision and whatnot, the dietary rules, and everything that God gave in the law, why did He give it? Well, the answer He gives to us in verses 19 and 20. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Ah, now he's going somewhere. He's letting us in on a little secret. He's saying to us that the purpose of the law was not to produce righteousness because it never could, but rather it exposes guilt. The law, the whole world becomes guilty before God when the law is exposed. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law... That is, by fulfilling what the law says, or trying to, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the first time I read this verse, my heart came to life. I've shared with you some of my testimony. You know, you know that the first book that I read in the Bible, when I first came to, to, to a point where I wanted to know more about God honestly, was the book of Romans. You know, when I was brought up in the Catholic Church and I was taught that you have to go through all the sacraments and you have to be in church and you have to do the holy days of obligation and you got to, you know, do... And there was all these things that you always had to do and you couldn't even measure up to those things even though nobody cared if you did or not. And I remember, I remember going through that and growing up in that and I remember for the first time reading that verse. I'm going to read it again, verse 19. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law... There shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That means that you cannot be justified before God by keeping the law. It's absolutely impossible. So then what was the purpose of it? Why did God give us these commands? Why did he give us the law? Why is it there if it can't save me and it's not there? He says, this is why. Please underline this, mark it, never forget it, share it with everybody that you see tomorrow. That by the law is the knowledge of sin. That the purpose that God gave the law was to show you that you couldn't keep it. Now, how many of you in here have kept the law? Any, anybody? Anybody in here never broken any of the commands? Now, if there were no commands, would you know that? You wouldn't. If there's no sign that says 55 miles an hour, then do you know you're breaking the law when you're going 90? No, you don't. You're just going with the flow, right? That's the way it's supposed to go. Go with the flow, you know, 90, you know, no. But when you see that sign that says 55, and you look down at your speedometer, you go, whoa, I'm going way too fast. You realize you're a lawbreaker. You're breaking the law. So the purpose of the law was not to justify you before God, but rather it was to expose the truth that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of God's glory. So what do you do? I mean, what can we do? There's, there's no righteousness that comes from the law. It's just revelation. The revelation of my sin. Now you remember last week or the week before, I, I can't remember when now, but I, I told you, remember about the, the black velvet backdrop that they use when they advertise jewelry? 
You know, when you, when you open up a, a, a box that's got an engagement ring or a nice pair of earrings, you know, and all that, it's always black. It's always dark. Why? Because it exposes the beauty of the jewel that's being presented. Well, that black curtain, that black backdrop that Paul has been giving to us is now in place. He's painted the whole thing. He's put six coats of black velvet paint on it for us so that now he can get to the point of where he's been going. Because all he's said all the way up to this point is that you are a rotten, wretched, filthy sinner, and so am I. That's all he said. Exhaustively. Completely. It's all there. That the law of creation leads to the light and therefore the world that ignores God is guilty before him. That the law of conscience assumes that there's an internal moral standard and therefore you're guilty before God, you're a sinner. That the law of Old Testament scripture requires sinless perfection and therefore you are guilty before God. And the result of all of that is that there is absolutely no hope for man whatsoever at all. It's a completely black, dark, and dismal picture. But for some reason... This hopelessness that Paul is presenting almost lights a fire of hope within you, doesn't it? I mean, if if you're putting yourself in the shoes of the the audience, those that are listening to Paul and and following him through this, all he's done is tell them that they're rotten. But yet, that rottenness produces a hope because you realize that if there's no way for me to be justified before God by anything that I could do, then there's got to be a way. There's got to be another way. And so there's this hope that kind of wells up within because you know that there's something else that God's got to have planned. And so Paul tells us what that is in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What was that? What do you mean, Paul? The NIV puts it this way. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. You're saying, Paul, that there is a way to be righteous before God that doesn't have anything to do with the law and keeping the commandments of God? Yes, that's what Paul's saying. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul says the good news, the core element, the powerful impacting truth of this gospel is that yes, you are sinful, yes, you are fallen, yes, you are condemned before God, but that God has made a way. That there is a way whereby you can be saved that has nothing to do with anything that you do or perform or keep. It's not dependent on you at all. It's a righteousness that comes from God that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he describes in these verses what that righteousness is. The first thing he says is that it's apart from the law. Now you see here that there's beginning to be a divide between these two systems. The law's system of salvation, which is do this perfectly and you shall live. And now there's this other way, this branch off of that that's completely separate, that's formed. It's apart from the law, Paul tells us there in verse 21. He he also tells us concerning this righteousness of God that it's not something that's new. It isn't that God just said, you know what, the law didn't work, so we'll just put it on the back burner and we'll go towards plan B and we'll start something completely new. He doesn't say that this is a new thing. He says it's a manifested thing. 
which means that it was previously not understood. It was previously unseen, but now it is being revealed. That it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. That if you look into the Old Testament scriptures, you'll see that it was there the whole time. That you see Adam and Eve in the garden, you see them sin, but then you see God make a way where he clothes them. He kills a lamb and then he clothes them. He covers their sin. There's an atonement that's made. He, he tells them in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the head of the serpent will be bruised by the seed of the woman. And he gives to them this glimmer that there's a plan, that there's something that God's going to do to redeem man from this curse of the law that's come upon man. That it's not new, it's been manifested. And then he tells us that this righteousness that comes from God, that it comes by believing in Jesus Christ. He says that it comes upon all and unto all that believe. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because in the book of James, it tells us that even the demons believe and that they tremble. So so belief in Jesus, does that mean that you acknowledge a historical figure named Jesus Christ? And that you believe certain facts about him that maybe have a supernatural element? Is that what it means to believe? No, it doesn't mean that you simply have an intellectual concept of who he was and that you say, okay, I believe it. Why not? Crazier things have happened. No, that's not what it means to believe. But what it means is that you're actually trusting him. You believe believe unto trust and you're trusting him with your salvation. That you're putting your salvation into his hands. And that's what it means to believe. Then he tells us who can have it in verse 22. He says that it's unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says that it's available to everybody. That because everyone has sinned, whether they be godless heathen, moralistic hypocrites, or whether they be Hebrews or religious people, all have sinned. And so therefore, this grace, this This righteousness from God is available to all. Who can come? The answer is sinners can come. Sinners. Does anybody meet that qualification? Does anybody meet the qualification? There's only one qualification given here is that you're a sinner. That's what you've got to be in order to come to Jesus. Well, what is this righteousness? He's saying there's a righteousness. What is it? I I mean, describe it. Paul elaborate. He does in verse 24. He says, being justified. That this righteousness of God allows us to become justified. It's a legal term. And what it means is that your account is cleared. That there's a way that the account, the record of your sin can be completely washed away, completely put away. That you can be justified. Some, somebody said one time that if you want to understand the word justified, you just use it as a sentence. That it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified never sinned. That that's what it means. That to be justified. That you can be justified before God. Your account can be cleared. What does it cost? He says freely. Being justified freely. That there's no cost to you. But in the Greek it also means that it was without a cause. That there was no reason for God to look at you and decide that he was going to justify you. That he was going to save you. But that he did it freely. And that it's through, it says, by his grace. You want to understand, grace, it's an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. 
God's riches at Christ's expense, that it's through His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let me read the whole thing. I broke it down, but he says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption. The word redemption is symbolic of that which would be heard or understood through a slave market. If you were a slave or you found yourself sold into slavery under something, then you could be redeemed or purchased from the slave market. And there's three words that could be translated in this way, redeem. The first is agorazo, which means to purchase out of the slave market in order to sell again. So it's kind of like flipping houses, you know, you're flipping slaves. You know, you go through and you, you find a good one and you say, okay, he's got good teeth, okay, he's got good legs, he's got, okay, good demeanor. Okay, we'll buy this one, and then you buy it, and then you mark him up, and then you sell him again. It could be that word, but it's not. The second word for redeem is to buy it, to use it. So you purchase a slave, you buy someone out of the slave market for the intent of bringing him home and putting him to work. But that's not what it means when it says that we've been redeemed or through the redemption. The third word is a word that means to purchase in order to set free. That you go into the slave market and you find somebody there that's bound, chained, and that you buy them, not to resell them or to use them, but to simply set them free. That your purpose in spending that money is to just set somebody free. He says that that's the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, that we have been bought for freedom. We were slaves to sin. We were bound under the curse of the law. We were destined and headed for hell. But yet there was a redemption. There was a price that was paid and that you are the purchased product and that you can be set free through the redemption that comes by the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of God. Well, how is this possible? How is it that God can just kind of do this? I mean, I've sinned. It's a reality. I mean, I've done dark deeds. There's been great wickedness that's been manifested in my life. How can God just come in and purchase me and set me free? I mean, that seems kind of crooked, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like God's just pulling one of those, you know, he can do anything kind of things. And and it's not right, really, what God's doing. No. Look at verse 25. It says that God has set Christ forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And that's a key word. Propitiation. There's not a real lot of, you know, English language that, that really describes what that word means. It's hard to define it. But the best you can do in the English language is a substitutionary atonement. A substitutionary atonement or a sacrifice. Now, now follow me here and we're wrapping up. The law requires sinless perfection. That's what the law required. When God gave the commandments to Moses and, and he covenanted with all the people that they were going to keep this law, he said the terms and conditions are that you must live by this standard. And that failure to do so is death and separation from God. That was the law. It's the, 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 in Romans later, he's going to call it the law of sin and death. Is that if you sin, you die. That's basically what it is. The wages of sin is death. So the penalty for failure of keeping this law is death and separation from God. Now, if that's you, if you have sinned in any way, if you've lived your whole life and you have sinned even on one day at one moment, then guess what? 
Under the law, you are condemned to die before a holy God. You have absolutely no way out. There's nothing you can do, except one thing. There's one thing that you can do if you're condemned and guilty before God. You could find somebody, if you searched long enough, if you went to great enough you know, depths and really searched, you could find someone, hopefully, maybe somewhere, that has never sinned. That they, they've lived their whole life according to God's perfect standard, never failing at one point. And you find that person. But then you've got a very daunting task. Because now you've got to convince that person to trade places with you. You've got to somehow talk to them and butter them up or bribe them, but they really can't take a bribe because that would kind of disqualify the whole purpose. you know. So somehow you just have to, to get on this person's good side just enough so that they'll be willing to trade places with you. That means that you get their reward of righteousness, heaven, eternal life, and they get your punishment of everlasting suffering and damnation. So you work out this deal and you try to do it, but that's going to be really hard to do because, I mean, if that were me, if I was perfect, I mean, I'd be a good guy, but I don't know if I would trade places with you on that one. You've done some pretty bad... No. So since there was no one like that that could be found, God himself disrobed himself of his deity and he became a man. He had to become a man. He couldn't be God. He couldn't be an angel. He couldn't be fleshless because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Leviticus 17 says that the life is in the blood. And so in order for God to, be, to do what he did, he had to become a man. He had to be fully man. And so God in the person of Christ entered into the world. And for 33 years, he kept the law perfectly. He never sinned. He never stumbled when he hit his hand with a hammer or when he was cut off in traffic. You know, when those donkeys, you know, the sports donkeys would. He never sinned, not a day in his life. Two times he was given the approval of God from heaven who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The second time he said, hear ye him, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. He was approved of God. He was perfect in every way. And then he sat at a table with his disciples just a few days, a few hours before he would suffer and go to the cross. And he sat around with that group of men that had been walking with him for three and a half years. And he held up a cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the sins of the world. And then he did something unthinkable. He said, take, drink of it. And he offered up the cup that was filled with righteousness. And he gave it to a group of sinful men that had rejected and denied Christ. A group of men that are described by that section here that we already read in Romans about the darkness of man. He offered it to them and he said, this is the cup of righteousness that I have filled for these 33 years. And I'm offering it to you to drink. And then a few hours later, Jesus would be praying in the garden alone, abandoned. And he would say these words. He would say, Father, let this cup pass from me. Three times he would say it, Lord, Father, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to take this cup. I don't want what's inside of it. I don't want to endure what, what it means, the shame and the pain, the, 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 the suffering that this cup means. Lord, please let it pass from me if it's possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what did Jesus do? He took that cup. Let me ask you, what was that cup? It was the cup that you filled. It was the cup that every selfish act, every dark deed, every wicked word that came from that sepulcher of death, every step that was taken in an iniquitous way, every action that was done denying God, every destruction, destructive act, every word of slander, everything that you've ever done, was in that cup. And Jesus took that cup and he drank it. He traded places with you. And he offers to you the cup, the clean cup. And he says, this cup that is in my blood, I give to you. He was giving away his cup in return for receiving ours. And he did this of his own free will. We didn't have to coerce him. We didn't have to beg. We didn't have to grovel at his feet. We didn't have to bribe him. He simply offered to us a cup of salvation. And then he took our cup of darkness and he drank it. And in doing that, he received the punishment for every sin that was ever committed by all of mankind. That when Jesus hung on the cross, when the nails pierced his hands, when his beard was ripped out, when the spit dripped down his face when his hair was pulled out, when the flagellum ripped across his back, when he was beaten with that rod. And in everything that was going on internally, mentally, things that we can't even understand that would cause him to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stressed to the point where great drops of blood began to run down his face. And it says that his visage, his appearance was so marred that his own mother wouldn't recognize him. It was more than any man. Isaiah tells us that he was receiving the punishment that every sin that was ever committed deserved. If you really want to understand what Jesus endured on the cross in its fullness, read Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Because in Revelation 6 through 19, you have the judgment of God being poured out upon sinful man. And if that's what Jesus Christ endured, because that's what Jesus Christ endured then it had to be at least equivalent to that. And when you read that, it shed some light. It was no small thing that Jesus did when he was nailed to the cross, when he hung there. But he did it willingly. He did it freely of his own will. Not wanting the shame. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, but that he despised the shame. That it was a shameful thing to hang on the cross. And he received the punishment for every sin. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is what propitiation means. That the righteous sentence of the law has been carried out so that what must else have been a judgment seat can righteously be called a mercy seat. The just for the unjust. And Paul says then that it leaves the only question left in verse 27 is that where is boasting then? It is excluded. How can you boast? 
How can anyone brag or say that they're righteous or profess to have anything to offer God? What qualifies you to be saved? What can you go to God and say, God, you should pick me because I, because I, it's like trading a Pinto for a 757 jet plane and saying you got a good deal because you have absolutely nothing to offer before God. Nothing qualifies you. And so therefore, verse 28, Paul concludes, he says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That it isn't the law that saves you. It isn't your keeping of the commandments. It isn't your righteousness. It's the work that God did. It's grace. We conclude. Now there are two systems in which a man can relate to God. Everybody on the planet relates to God in one of two ways. Either according to the law, a system of rules and requirements, where relationship to God is based on your performance, where blessing is conditional, Constantly questioning, am I keeping up? Am I doing enough? Am I pleasing to Him? And the result is always failure and condemnation and separation because the law can't save anybody. Or you're relating to God through the covenant of grace, through the propitiation that comes through Christ, where all sin and failure is absorbed by Him, where relation to God is free and open through faith, where God's blessing upon your life is unconditional where salvation is given to you and not earned through your merit, where your sins are forgiven and forgotten, and that the result is justification before God, acceptance by Him, and eternal life through Christ. That's grace. And everyone in this room is relating to God by either one system or the other. You are either trying to attain God's righteousness and His acceptance and blessing through your efforts and your good works, Or, you're simply receiving God's righteousness and acceptance and blessing through His effort on your behalf. I remember reading a quote in a book one time, I'll never forget. It said that the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world is this. Is that religion is man's best effort to try to reach God by his good works. But Christianity is God seeking to reach you by his work that he accomplished through Christ on the cross. And Paul now brings the Roman church to this point where they are given this gospel, this great message. The musicians can come and we'll close. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to exchange cups. Maybe you're here and in your cup is every deed you've ever done. Maybe there's a path of destruction and misery. Character assassination and woe darkness there's a cup that one day you're going to have to drink and bear the punishment and the wrath of its contents but Jesus tonight stands to you and he still holds out that same cup and he said this is the new covenant the cup in my blood it's shed for you take and drink of it and he'll still willingly reach out and he'll remove the cup that's in front of you and he'll give to you his cup of perfect righteousness, the righteousness that comes apart from the law. I would encourage you, if you have yet to make that transaction with God, that you do that tonight, that you give your life to Him, that you trust Him, that you believe in Jesus, that you become one of those who set free from the law of sin and death and is brought into relationship with God through the covenant established through His grace by the blood. 
Maybe there's some of you that are here tonight that you're saved. You've given your life to Christ and you're, you're going to heaven. He's got you in His hand. But yet you still find yourself relating to God through the law. There's kind of this mix in your life of grace and law. It's graw, you know. Where, you know, you know that you're saved, but you're constantly trying to measure up. Am I doing enough? Oh, I, I, I prayed today, so I know that God's going to be with me because I remembered to pray. I, I read my Bible for at least 15 minutes, and then I spent time on my knees, and so I know that God's going to be with me today. But then tomorrow, you miss the alarm. You know, you begin to move through your day, and, you know, maybe something isn't going right, or you find yourself a little groggy, or your temper flaring up a little bit, and quickly you begin to say, Oh, no, God's not with me today. I forgot to pray. I forgot to read my Bible. Or you think, I haven't shared with anybody in so long. Or, you know, oh, man, the things that I'm thinking about, the things that are crossing my mind, and these lusts and these temptations, the sin that I'm constantly stumbling over, surely God can't bless me. Surely all these bad things are happening to me because of this sin, this, this, this problem that I'm having. Listen, you're under the wrong covenant. See, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You're completely free and completely forgiven. And God is with you. God longs to bless you. He longs to show himself to you. He longs to reveal himself. He longs to set you free from those things that are, that are ailing you. Those conditions, those sins of the flesh that you find yourself stumbling over. His power is with you. There's nothing that you can do to add to what he's done the covenant of grace. You recognize that you're a wretched sinner and that you've messed your life up. But now God gives to you the opportunity to be free and forgiven and accepted by Him and to walk in fellowship with Him. That's what He wants for you. So, if you need to exchange cups, please talk to somebody. Give your life to the Lord. Don't put it off. Don't waste time. You're just missing out on the life that God has for you. The blessing He wants to show you. And if you're a Christian and you're living in draw, come to the full experience of the grace of God, freely accepted and forgiven because of this great grace that he was willing to trade places, removing the curse of the law from your path and giving you the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, let's all stand. Margaretha, I believe it's called, You Are My King.